When it comes to hiring, don't go searching for the one. Just meet your match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash match. Just go to Indeed.com slash match right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash match. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome back once again to the Bootleg Football Podcast. I know it's been roughly a week and a half since our last episode. Apologies for the delay. Uh, EJ and I have been really working hard the last uh, week or so trying to get ready for the draft. So it took a couple extra days to get ready to do this episode. But I think we have watched, finally, enough tape on enough offensive players to kind of narrow down our 10 best offensive gems of the 2020 draft class. So this is going to be a jam-packed episode as per usual. But before we get into that, of course, you guys know by now, two very important questions off the top every single show. EJ, how you doing? And what you drinking? I am in my happy place because the annual running back binge-a-thon has commenced. For those that don't know, (laughs) I saved my running back tape until the end. It's my prize for the end of the grind. It's the light at the end of the tunnel. I love running back tape. And I, I, of course, watch tons of running backs as I watch defenders and whatever else. But I don't do my straight up running back studies until the very end. And I finally cracked the seal uh, two nights ago and am now full running backs, full on until the draft. We'll go through about 20 to 25 of them, probably. And it's just nirvana for me. So that's uh, been a nice distraction. It's just a ton of fun. I love watching that that position. So we'll talk about uh, one of those guys tonight, um, at least on my side, maybe a couple more on your side. But uh, what am I drinking? I'm drinking uh, Iron Horse Brewing from Ellensburg, Washington's beer, which is Quilter's Irish Death. Uh, they describe it as a dark, smooth ale, 7.8 by volume, um, basically like a Guinness with a lot more malt in it and a bit smoother body. So not that kind of dry bite. And uh, very, very drinkable, very, very dark. And you don't want to pound too many of them because they're seven, eight. But uh, that's what I'll be enjoying as we talk about some of these folks that we think are really interesting, might not be the best at their category, but somebody we really enjoyed watching or maybe think isn't getting as much hype as some of the others. Those uh, those those beers that hover around eight percent of the dangerous ones, because those are the ones <laughs> where like you get through four or five of them. And then you stand up from whatever you're sitting in and, and immediately realize how terrible a mistake you made. <laughs> what does this get through four or five of them? Oh, I'd be asleep right now if I tried to get through four or five of these. Clearly, you've play... never been to Pike's Place Brewing. <laughs> oh, actually, I have some Pikes in the garage. I've got uh, Pike's Kilt Lifter in the garage. I managed to oh, snag stuff. some before the lockdown. And uh, I will bring that on the pod at some point, maybe as we do a little draft run up next week. But before we get going, I have a game for you. A game? Yeah. What's that? Okay, we're going to do a little name association. You're going to tell me 
what is similar about this list of players? You ready? Okay. Okay. Michael Pittman. Yeah. Jedrick Wills. Okay. Lynn Bowden. Troy Pride. LaVisca Chenault. Antoine Winfield. Willie Gay. And Antoine Brooks. Man, that is all over the map. Uh, not all of them are senior bowl guys. Not all of them are one conference. Not all of them were correct. S- correct. We're, we're three year starters. Oh. <laughs> Only I mean, all you, of them are Colin. good. Only you would go with three year starters. <laughs> all of them are really good. Um, all of them can technically play multiple positions if you consider left and right tackle different positions. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. What, what's the similarity? They're all juniors. Oh. Oh, yeah, they that totally all, slipped my mind. <laughs> they are all juniors. Michael Pittman, Lynn Bowden, Jedrick Wills, Troy Pride, LaVisca Chenault, Antoine Winfield, Willie Gay, and Antoine Brooks are all juniors. We got a lot of juniors in this draft, and I'm not talking about guys that have been in school for three years. Oh, oh literal, literal, literal actual juniors. juniors. Yeah, like not three years in college, but, you know, named the same as their father. <laughs> And Pittman, yeah, his, a, his dad was a great player, too. Yeah. No, Pittman was great. Winfield was great. Um, yeah. I, you know, it's just amazing to me as I go down the roster, like, how many guys are listed as junior? And, uh, yeah, I'd forgotten completely about LaVisca Chenault. So, anyways, as I put that list together for tonight, I was like, that's crazy. I don't know that I've ever seen that many guys named junior uh, in, in one draft. So, anyways. Fun game. I, I didn't know That's there was it. more than one person named LaVisca either, but apparently I was proven wrong. Um, I totally forgot where we were supposed to be. In the uh, man, I've been I've been having a lot of scotch so far. Clearly, I started drinking. Really? It. Yeah. Uh, what I started you, what drinking scotch it. are you drinking? We didn't even get to that. Yeah. Well, I started drinking it about two hours ago because it's been that kind of week. Uh, oh. I don't I don't know if it, some of our listeners might not be. Um, near a Costco that actually sells liquor. It kind of varies from state to state. But if you are, and I highly recommend it, so Kirkland brand alcohol, I swear to God, is the best value in boo- in booze that, that people don't realize. Uh, they have a 22-year-old Speyside under the Kirkland brand, but obviously Kirkland doesn't distill it or bottle it or do anything. It's, uh, it's like a private label collaboration with a company called Alexander Murray, and company oh yeah and they're uh they're an independent bottler so what they do is they go throughout scotland they're based in aberdeen and they source barrels and they'll age them themselves and so they partnered with uh kirkland to kind of release a line through that's you know exclusively uh delivered to costco so they did an 18 they did a 20 and now they have a 22 year old space side and i swear to god ej they source this from mccallan because it's the exact same profile uh and it has the color like it's not like color additive either like you have the the color that you can only get from spending more than two decades in a barrel you get just the the dark fruit and the hints of chocolate on the nose it is an exceptional scotch and it's 80 bucks because it's kirkland and i don't know where else you can get a 20 plus year old scotch for 80 bucks let alone a good one this is by far the best value in scotch I've ever had in my life. It's not the best scotch I've ever had in my life, but it's pretty damn good, and it's pretty damn cheap. 
So that's what I'm drinking tonight. I got five bottles of it because I don't know how long they're going to carry it in the store, but I want it forever because where else, <laughs> I want it forever. Where else am yeah, I going to get a somehow, 22-year-old scotch for 80 bucks? So I stocked yeah, up while somehow, I could. scotch in your house is not going to last forever, but there is a Costco very near me. So if I ever uh, decide to end my lockdown, I might uh, I might wander out and see about a barrel of that, but... Uh, or not a barrel of that, but a bottle of that. I don't I don't think I could finish a barrel of scotch. But anyways, let's get to some of these gems. Um, we're going to go through 10 of them. You've got five. I've got five. Again, uh, we didn't really adhere to sort of any particular position group or conference or, or even ranking. These aren't our top five guys or, or anything else. It's just guys that we watched and thought were interesting or possibly undervalued or maybe just underappreciated. So who's your first guy? So I, I put this out on Twitter today. And got a oh, very, yes, very, very strong reaction to it. So I figured I'd lead out the pod with it. Um, I decided to sack up and just go with my gut and not adhere to the consensus quarterback rankings out there. And if, I, if I'm going to go down with the ship, I'm going to go down with the ship. So I put Jalen Hurts at QB3 in this class, which... Just sounding or j- just hearing that at first, a lot of people are going to be like, Brett, what the hell are you talking about? Obviously, he's not Burrow and he's not Tua, who are both phenomenal prospects. But Hurts in his own right is pretty damn good. And if I had to choose between him and Jordan Love and Justin Herbert, there's a lot more qualities that I would feel comfortable with if I'm a general manager trying to save my job by taking a, a young quarterback. There, there's more qualities in Hertz that I feel comfortable gambling on than I do with Love and Herbert. I just released a, a big-ass film room episode on Herbert, kind of detailing all of the uh, uh, things that give me pause about him as a prospect, why he unfortunately reminds me in a lot of ways, both good and bad, of, of Mitch Trubisky, the maddening inconsistency, um, the seemingly not getting better <laughs> even though he's a four-year starter he never really kind of got over that that plateau he almost he always seems like he's just on the cusp of of being great almost like a Ryan Tannehill in Miami before he got to Tennessee where um just it was a perfect system fit and we'll, we can get into him over the offseason but just that that perpetual feeling of man he's almost there and uh if he could just fix that one little thing Herbert, I just, I don't know if he's ever going to get over that plateau. He's had so many years as a starter to get over that plateau, and he hasn't. And then Jordan Love, who he had a phenomenal 2018, and then the team got gutted in 2019. But some of the issues that even were there in 2018 when he was a really good player, particularly not being really good at throwing the fade ball and the go ball, like that, that throw just gives him trouble. And in the NFL, you have to be able to throw go routes. You have to be able to throw fades because that's, especially, you know, if you're in an offense that likes to put your number one receiver in the slot and run slot fades just to get him like a number one or a one-on-one matchup, which a lot of teams do these days, you have to be able to throw that ball. You have to be able to hit that throw. And he just, for whatever reason, in the last two years, he just hasn't been able to. And that's not really something that's easy to fix. That's all about touch and timing and anticipation, which are things that a lot of times you just either have it or you don't. He'll make some truly incredible throws and I think he's pretty good in the quick game, but he's not, he hasn't gotten appreciably better in some of the things that I think he needs to. And then you look at Jalen Hurts, who contrasted with Love and Herbert, he has gotten better every single year. Not even just noticeably better, but a lot better. 
Like, you look at his release, you look at his accuracy, you look at his decision-making, uh, you look at his pocket presence from when he was the SEC freshman of the year, and then a sophomore, and then he, he was to his backup uh, in 2018, and he played really well when he was in the game. And then he went to Oklahoma and got another starting job at OU, and he, he was just an actual better football player with every year of experience learning multiple systems, multiple different languages, working with a whole bunch of different receivers. And I just, I love the progression that I saw from him. He's not the same player he was two years ago, like Herbert is, and arguably like Love is. And he's a phenomenal leader. He's a freak athlete. His arm is good enough to me. There's, there's just so many qualities that, again, if I'm a general manager and I have to bet my livelihood on somebody... I'm going to bet it on the hardworking athletic freak that gets better every single year. I don't think that that's that crazy of a take. It's, it's not. And I feel your pain because uh, it was probably about 10 days ago, maybe two weeks ago now. And I was just messing around with mock drafts and I happened to throw one up because look, I had a little extra time to get abused. So I threw it on Twitter and it was for the bears and I had traded down uh, twice. And I think my first pick in the first round was like 50, uh, 53 or 54, something like that. Cause I'd traded 43, gone down about 10 spots, picked up a, a later second and a third. And I got to the mid fifties or the late fifties and Jalen hurts was on the board and I'd picked up a bunch of extra picks. So this isn't the Chicago we know of staring down the face of the draft right now with two picks in the second round and then not another till the fifth. There was a bunch of ammo there. And obviously Chicago's quarterback situation's not settled. Nick Foles is there. I think he's the presumptive starter. Uh, Mitch is who knows what at this point, you know, maybe, maybe backup that can develop, maybe trade bait, who knows? It's, it's just all over the board. And, they need an answer at that position. And we both know until you get an answer at that position in the NFL, you just keep going. You just keep digging. You just keep taking shots. You just keep acquiring assets until you find the guy, the answer. So he's sitting there at the mid fifties and I've got a bunch of other picks. And I said, all right, what the hell? I'll take him. So I take Jalen hurts at like, I don't know, 53 or 56, something like that. And man, people come out of the woodwork. What are you doing? Uh, you know, Pace and Nagy are on the hot seat. They don't have time to wait. Blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, look, this guy has started at two power five programs, right? He is a captain, a leader. He's played in national championship games. To your point, he's improved every year. And the knock on Hertz when you really get down to it is not his athleticism, not his ability to move in the pocket, not his ability to throw accurately short. It's the ability to throw accurately deep and i i have some stats for that because this is very interesting yeah so th these are some numbers that i pulled up uh, number one jalen hurts last year passed down the field meaning 10 plus yards past the line of scrimmage so in the intermediate and deep passing game he passed down the field at a higher rate than any other top quarterback prospect in this class Tua was at 42%, Burrow was at 36%, Herbert was at 40%, believe it or not, despite how many screens they threw, uh, and Love was at about uh, 38%. So he, he was attacking down the field more than other quarterbacks. He was throwing less screens than other quarterbacks, so he had fewer layups. Uh, again, Herbert 
had a ridiculous rate of screen passes at about 23%. Hertz was at about 11%, which is comparable to the average NFL starter. Um, you know, that that's a pretty normal number. So he wasn't, he like, it's not like Lincoln Riley was dialing up screens on every first and 10, like, like Oregon was. Like, it was a, this whole conception that all they do is throw screens there is not accurate. Um, now, additionally, Hertz's on-target accuracy percentage on those throws that are 10 plus yards past the line of scrimmage. This isn't completion percentage. It's just, was the ball uh, catchable? You know, if the DB breaks it up, if the receiver drops it, whatever that that's, if it's an incompletion, it doesn't matter. It was it on target. He had 75% accuracy percentage on those downfield throws. That was the third highest in all of college football for reference. Burrow was at 80%, which is ridiculous. In 2018, when he was the backup for Tua, but he still got plenty of playtime because they blew everybody out, so he was playing in the second half of basically every game, uh, he led all of college football at 83% on-target accuracy for downfield throws. Again, ridiculous number. Um, Herbert and Love, by comparison, for 2019, this past season, were 69th and 70th in the country at about 62%. Very, very low. Um... And, and so I, I look at these numbers and obviously I look at the tape, you look at the Baylor game where C.D. Lamb wasn't even playing in the second half and they were down by 25 points and he still led them back, basically just carrying the team on his back. He led them back and they won that game without his number one receiver. Like he is a legitimately good passer. And I think the, the downfield passing numbers when he was early in his career yeah, I think those are pretty easy to, to call out because he, he wasn't a good passer back then. But he has grown so much. Uh, I almost liken him to like a Dak Prescott, where the Dak Prescott we saw in 2019 was not the Dak Prescott that we saw in 2016 and 2017. They're, they're two different quarterbacks now. And so I just, I believe in his growth. I believe in his progression. And somebody who has gotten that much better despite learning a new offense in the middle of his career, I just, I can't not bet on that kid. Yeah. He's very hard to bet against for many of the reasons that we've brought up. And I think he's much closer to a ready-made plug-in than either Herbert or love. Certainly more than love. I think that's a very easy comparison to make and say that, that hurts is, is much more sort of, game ready at the pro level than love is i don't even think that's a stretch herbert i think it's the same right i think if i have to say who's my week one starter if i'm a team that needs a week one starter between hertz and herbert i'm going with hertz because he's proven that he can adapt to new systems adapt to new teammates lead win um and make things happen with his arm with his legs like uh, this goes back to, you know, DJ and Bucky on Move the Sticks talking about shooters versus scorers, right? And the NFL is classically looking for, that's a basketball analogy, right? The NFL is classically looking for guys who can throw, right? Who can shoot the three, right? Throw that long ball. And Herbert looks to be that part, right? He's got the big arm and occasionally he just thread one, you know, 55 yards downfield and go, ooh, that's a shooter, right? Scorers are guys that find ways to get it to the hoop a bunch of different ways, off the dribble, off the dunk, grab a rebound, you know, put it back off the glass, shoot the 10-footer off the elbow. Like, they find a way to get it done. Hertz is a scorer. He is not particularly a shooter. Now, the stats you brought up say he's a better shooter than people think he is. 
but he's a scorer, right? He's a guy that gets it done and, to your point, has gotten it done at a higher level every year. So I just think he's a really hard guy to bet against. Yeah, I I think he's going to sneak in solely because of the contract control. I yeah. think he's going to sneak into the back end of the first round. I really do. I don't know that he will. I'm going to say I think he should. Uh, Chargers. Chargers trading up to 30. You heard it here first. Yeah, I can see that. I can see Anthony Lynn selling, selling a pick to do that for sure. Because uh, he's so perfect behind Tyrod. So perfect. Yeah, and he gives them a longer-term option who could lead them for a long time. So, yeah, I don't think that's a bad thing at all. Who's uh, who's your first guy on your, your first list? I'm going to lead off with uh, a West Coast guy, speaking of the Chargers, uh, with Michael Pittman Jr. at USC. And uh, we've talked at length in lots of different formats now about the wide receiver class, the wide receiver depth, um, how ridiculous it is, how many talented players there are, how many different types of talented players there are. We got to see Pittman at the Senior Bowl up close, and he destroyed the first day of practice. Now, for those of you that don't know Michael Pittman, yes, his dad, Michael Pittman Sr., running back, played for Tampa Bay, amongst some other teams, good pro. Um, Michael Pittman Jr., the USC receiver, big guy, 6'4", about 223, did not look like that in ladder drills did not look like that in the little break and box drills that they do for warmups for wide receivers at the senior bowl showed a lot of body control, a lot of snap in and out of his breaks um, looked like the clear leader in the clubhouse is the best receiver at the senior bowl on the first day. And on top of that, look, he's six, four, he's got good hands, runs good routes. He can play down the field. He can play the short game um, ran in what the mid four fives, which for a guy that size is Plenty of speed. The top five receivers in the NFL in terms of yards gained this year were all in the four five range. I think the average was about four five five um, for what they ran for their 40s. So that's functional speed in the NFL. That's not a problem. If you watch his game, Michael Pittman Jr.'s game against Utah, it's like watching a superhero film. Ooh. It's ridiculous. He went over 200 up. yards. Yeah. He single-handedly just took apart one of the best defenses, uh, certainly in the Pac-12, but um, in the country. And he made them look silly. And I mean really silly. And most of it, half of it, with a backup quarterback. Um, the the lead quarterback for USC went out in the first half with an injury. And uh, he just continued to destroy them. So he's got great film. He looks good against, you know, competition at the Senior Bowl. He, his numbers are fine from the combine and there's just so much talent and depth in this wide receiver class. You don't hear him talked about as, you know, wide receiver five, even, I, I think he's maybe creeping up to that status. Um, but in any other year, this guy's a first round wide receiver, right? This guy's an easy pick in the twenties as a wide receiver, uh, for a team that needs a starter, you know, a number one big outside guy that can kind of do it all. Uh, and he's just not getting that kind of billing. But I think he deserves it. Um, yes, I think the guys ahead of him have qualities that, that put them there, the C.D. Lambs. Like, I'm not saying Pittman's better than C.D. Lamb. I'm saying, look, it's a historic year, and Pittman is as good as many, I would say better than many previous former first-rounders at wide receiver, and he's certainly not getting that kind of hype. Well, why don't I play this game? If he was coming out and Hollywood Brown were coming out in the same year, who do you take first? 
depends on what I need. If I need pure speed, I might go Brown. But if I'm looking for the more complete and the better overall receiver, it's Pittman, not even close. So what about DK? Uh, no, I'd still take Pittman. What about Nikhil Harry? Mm, I'm Pittman. Debo Samuel? Who went top around what, two? What we know about Debo Samuel now in the hands of Kyle Shanahan, or a, what we thought as Debo a Samuel as a prospect, <laughs> as a prospect, yeah, as a prospect, no, uh, I no, uh, uh-uh. as so, a pro maybe, but not as a prospect. So here, here were the first grounders the year before: DJ Moore mm-hmm. and Calvin Ridley. Would you take Pittman now versus those two prospects as prospects? Uh, I might. I uh, I was not as high on Ridley as everybody else was i thought he was very good but uh, everybody else had him as the de facto number one and i was like eh. um because my number one that DJ year was Cortland lot, sutton i i i really liked dj Moore a lot that year but i can't say that i liked him more than i like Pittman right now i would say that's about a dead heat i'd probably take i don't know i might have taken ridley a little bit above him but I, I don't know. I would have had that. That almost is a three-horse race, depending on what you like more in terms of size, speed, route running, whatever. I, I would have taken Cortland Sutton over Pittman, but it would have been yes. It would have been a very hard conversation. Really? Yeah. Sorry, I loved Sutton. Sutton was my wide receiver one that year, like from the pole, like actually from the year before. I was like, when this guy comes out, he's wide receiver one. Forget it. I thought and, the Cowboys were going to take him. I was convinced. They were going to take him because they, at the time, they still needed a replacement for Dez. I don't know why the hell they passed on him. Yeah, but. no, Sutton was my number. I, if it was between um, Pittman and Sutton, I'm taking Sutton like hands down. But most of the other guys, it's at least a conversation, if not Pittman. So, and then um, you look at this I, class, and he's maybe number five. It's crazy. I, I think he's yeah. I, I think five is actually a stretch on most people's boards. I, I see some crazy stuff. I see like LaVisca Chenault above Pittman, and I'm like, what What are you talking about? Like, I'll say, I for have him for I, why. I have him going in the first round of my mock draft, and he's still my wide receiver seven. That's how crazy this class is. Yeah, and I think that, that sort of range, five to seven, is, is legitimate, and he's earned that and whatever else. But I think we need to keep in mind that that five to seven is two to three in almost any other year. Yeah, it's oh, we're talking Denzel Mims and Donovan Peoples-Jones are right in front of him, and it's very close. Yeah. Very, very close. So, And I, I again, when we were watching him down in the Senior Bowl, every other ooh and ah you hear from the bleachers, it was because Pittman was absolutely destroying some corpse of a DB on the field. I mean, just throwing yeah, him all over he, the place. He it, owned for the first, especially oh. the first day, but he just owned. And then Mims really came on and, and Van Jefferson started to heat up as well, but uh, in day two and day three. But day one, it was clearly Michael Pittman show. So he, he yep. set the tone, and then the DBs realized, like, oh man, these guys are gonna kick our asses if we don't play hard. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and they kind of did, which was cool. That's a great <laughs> job by by Nagy and his staff, Jim Nagy and his staff, to put together a really strong wide receiver group this year. So, but it was fun to watch him, and I, you know, he's my he's my first guy on the gems list just because I think he's really good. Some team's going to get a great value end of the first round, top of the second round, wherever he ends up going. Um, you know, there'll probably be a wide receiver drafted ahead of him that we will groan at if we're doing a live stream or reactions. We'll just be like, what are you doing? You took them in front of Pittman, like Pittman's still on the board and you took that guy. I guarantee that's going to happen at some point, but some team's going to walk away very, very happy with Michael Pittman Jr. You know, my, my second guy is also 
well, I'm going to kind of skip ahead on my list a little bit because I do want to continue the wide receiver discussion. I mentioned Donovan Peoples-Jones uh, is my wide receiver six this year, and he's the second DPJ. one. DPJ! Oh, man, he is so underappreciated. Yep. If he had any other quarterback but Shea Patterson, I mean, I, I, you watch Michigan's offense. It is – it's difficult. Like, I can't watch Michigan without a drink in my hand because it is rough. Especially yep. early in the year. It, I felt so bad for him. So bad for him. And you look at his physical skill set, it's utterly absurd. He's one of the best athletes in this whole class. But he's a more refined receiver, like actually playing the position, than I think people realize. Uh, in terms of his ability to manipulate leverage and use his explosiveness to his advantage, like once he crosses your face, he is gone. Um, he's a natural slot receiver, but you can also bump him outside. He's got the size for it, but I think he's really at home in the slot because he's a better athlete than almost every nickel corner you're going to face. Um, I, I think he reminds me a lot, uh, skill set wise coming out. He, he's a kind of a bigger version, a little bit less long speed, but better short area explosiveness, a, a, a bigger version of Terry McLaurin where you could just see, he knows what he's doing. He's ultra smooth, ultra quick, really good route runner, better hands than you think. He can climb on top of you. And I, when Terry was coming out, he kind of reminded me a lot of Emmanuel Sanders, and that ended up being right. Now, and I think Peoples-Jones has a lot of Emmanuel Sanders to him, hmm. especially in the quickness department off the line. Like, I, I love DPJ. I think he's going to be a much better pro, or at least a much more productive pro than he was in college, assuming he gets a better quarterback, because... Yeah. Man, he's he's just he's got all the talent in the world, and he's more refined than you think. Yeah, I had notes all over uh, last year. Any Michigan game I watched, I had notes about DPJ, and I was like, man, this guy when he comes out, he's gonna be one of the top receivers in class. And here we are, um, twenty twenty, looking at the draft. It's stacked with wide receivers. And not a lot of people are talking about him. And it, it's not that he regressed. It's that, yeah, the Michigan offense were tough. Shea Patterson is not what I would consider a pro-level quarterback. And he didn't stand out. He certainly didn't get highlighted or featured like a lot of the other guys. And, yeah, people are sleeping on him. And I see him down sometimes as low as 20, depending on the list in this class. And I'm like, that's insane. Um, he's better than that for sure, even in the stacked class. So I'm with you. I think DPJ is underrated. And again, somebody's going to get a value. He might not be one of those guys that absolutely blasts out in his rookie year, but I think very much he's going to be one of those guys that two, three years on is going to be producing at a much higher level than his draft slot. Yeah, he's going to be, I would imagine he's going to end up being a starting slot receiver for some team initially. Um, and I think there's a lot of teams that could use him. Like I look at, hey, let's say Miami takes Tua at five and they're looking for a, a third receiver to go with uh, the two big guys they got outside there, one that can play inside for him. I think that's a hell of a fit. And you give him a quarterback like Tua. Ooh, he, again, I don't know if he'll put up insane numbers, but just in terms of fit for what that system needs and just giving him a quarterback that's accurate enough to feed him over the middle. Man, he could be such a good pro. I'm I'm really excited about him. Yeah, 
I like him a lot. I'm glad you brought him up. Yeah, he is one of those one of those players that is better than what people are talking about this draft. And then certainly in terms of attention, you ask a lot of people about him. They're like, oh, yeah, yeah, that guy. <laughs> and you're like, uh, <laughs> he's not a yeah, that guy. Like, he's way better than that. So I'm speaking of under the radar, by the way. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm just kind of peeking ahead at your list. You've got a whole lot of guys that literally nobody is talking about at all. But yeah, it's, oh, it's funny. I'm, I'm looking we'll, at number talk. two, and I think if well, he goes to the right team, right? <laughs> number two is another receiver. We're we're sort of talking a lot about receivers because because Brett skipped ahead and went to DPJ, but we'll we'll just keep it on the receiver trail. But I almost think this isn't the receiver trail, right? So number two on my list is Lynn Bowden Jr., Kentucky, and. You say, well, well, what's Lynn Bowden? Is he is he a wide receiver? Well, he's listed as a wide receiver, but he's also a quarterback. He played quite a bit of quite a bit of quarterback for the Cats and was very successful doing it. He was not just a runner. Uh, he he can throw it and throw it pretty well. Now Kentucky chose not to throw it a lot, but um, the combination of what Lynn Bowden is is really interesting he's not like anybody else and it's very rare that we get to say that in in the draft world right everybody's like somebody else and Lynn Bowden Jr. is a guy that has legitimate potential to score a touchdown five different ways in the same game Mm -hmm. he could throw it He's proven that at Kentucky. He can definitely catch it. He's absolutely proved that at Kentucky. He can run it for sure. He has, you go look at his highlights and it's just roll after roll of 40, 50, 60 yard runs where he takes a look, uh, the defense drops seven. He's got a huge alley up the middle where they miss on a blitz and he's like, bye. And he weaves his way downfield, makes about two or three good cutbacks. He is not crazy blazing fast like a like a hamler or somebody like that but he absolutely is a gamer knows for the end zone um fully understands run after the catch uh would probably be a decent running back if you wanted to play him there so he can throw it he can catch it he can run it and then he can return a punt or a kick and has done so both at kentucky he could legitimately score five different ways for a team that he goes to he could be their third quarterback he could be their third wide receiver. He could be their, uh, you know, second punt returner and first kick returner. And what kind of value, what kind of a crazy, insane value is that to have as a guy that's a threat to score from five different positions, takes up one roster spot. Um, there just aren't a lot of people like Lynn Bowden Jr. I'll tell you why I was so excited to, to get to him on your list. And, and as soon as you typed him in, I was like, okay, I, I, I want this to happen. My my dream, or I guess nightmare, could also be considered a nightmare, New Orleans. Mm. You put him with Sean Payton, who absolutely yeah. will find a way for him to score five touchdowns in five different ways. I, I mean, agree. he, he uh, why why pay Taysom Hill? Why keep him around when you can have Limbo and Jr. for the next four years for dirt cheap to do the exact same thing and do it better? Yeah, I really think with very few exceptions that Lynn Bowden Jr. is a better version of Taysom Hill. And just to double check that, yeah, he's a true junior. Yeah. <laughs> so he's a third year junior, uh, which means he's 20, 
two and a half years old right now. Uh, Taysom Hill, and almost nobody recognizes this fact, is going to be 30 this year. Yeah. 30, 3-0. Been, been in the league not that long, uh, but he was on a mission before that. And he's, he's literally going to be 30. And if you can get Lynn Bowden again, third, fourth probably, I think, is about the right place, the right value. For, for no money. For no money at 22 and a half years old, and he can fill five roles on your roster on game day. Uh, what? Like, and, and at a high level. These are not like, oh, yeah, I've seen him throw left-handed and it's not that bad. No, this guy threw, you know, touchdowns against the SEC uh, with fair regularity and certainly ran for a lot more. So, no, Bowden's a ton of fun, um, extremely versatile, knows it. Um really moved to quarterback because the team had need there, not because he wanted to, or it was any kind of diva thing. He was fine doing what he was doing. And they're like, well, we need your quarterback. And he was like, okay, uh, yeah, I can do that. Uh, you know, Hey, we need your wide receiver. Hey, we need your kick return. And he just does it all and scores from every position and makes a lot of really high level athletes. Um, you know, they play good teams every week, look really silly on a regular basis. And it, yeah, his ability to run in the open field, his run after catch is, uh, you know, I'm not going to say it's as good as a guy like Ayuk, but it ain't that at, far off. He's really close to that level. If you gave him like Ayuk's quicks, um, and he's not slow. I'm not trying to make him out as slow, but if you gave him like really elite quicks with his vision and ability to cut back, like, oh, he's already dangerous enough, but that would just be that would be legitimately breathtaking. He's just, he's a football player. That's, he is it, exactly that. He reminds me of, um, and I'm going to say it and people are going to jump all over me for it. He reminds me of a guy like Walter Payton who could do whatever you asked him to do on the football field. Look, Lynn Bowden Jr. is not Walter Payton. Let's be clear. But he has that same sort of, hey, put the ball in my hands any way you want me to get it and I'll make it happen. That, that to me screams exactly what you said football player yeah like what put, is him, lynn put him bowden on the field we'll, we'll figure it out yeah what is lynn bowden jr is your receiver or quarterback it doesn't, doesn't matter he's a football player get him the ball he's going to do good things for your team so i i think probably you know 30 out of 32 teams want that guy on their team right now the other two are just too mired in well what is he what's the value right and the value is getting the balls in the hand and he's gonna score that's that's the value yeah Oh God, I love him. I I can't wait to see where he goes because I know we're gonna have we're gonna talk about him for ten more minutes for for wherever he actually ends up in the league. Um, yeah. One of my my all time favorite offensive linemen to ever study is the third guy on my list, and he's my favorite not because he's my highest grade, but just in terms of pure entertainment factor. Uh, it's hard to outdo Mackay Becton. <laughs> The Man Mountain, Makai Becton. Yeah, I he is just absurd in terms of the amount of times that you have to watch the wide angle because if you're watching the end zone angle, he takes his guy off the screen. <laughs> so you need to figure out where he goes. Yeah. You have to watch the wide angle just to actually Drives watch him. Drives him into the sideline. You're watching him run block from the from the high angle cam because you can't do it from the other one. I mean, I, I felt so bad for, for Alton Robinson and, and Coleman over at Syracuse, who were two edges that are going to be drafted. They were 
arguably the one of the best one-two punches in college football last year because how many teams have two edges that are going to be drafted in the same year? Syracuse is one of them. They must have ran outside zone lead behind Becton 20 times in that game for like a buck 50. He absolutely annihilated them. And it wasn't just power and speed. Like in terms of technique and angles and actually reading fronts and knowing when to pass off to the tight end and knowing when to crank them outside and widen the edge and let the tight end pull through the B gap. Like, He's a really, really smart tackle, too. And keep in mind, outside zone is is just as much about reading and reacting and working in concert with the guys around you than it is just being bigger, stronger, and faster. He is bigger and stronger and faster, but again, there's a mental component to it that he has mastered. And so when when you watch that, and again, he's a better pass protector than, again, I think he's, he's given credit for. He only allowed an average of one pressure a game. Only one. And, and people are going to say, oh, well, he only had 70-something true pass sets. Well, okay, fine. But, again, one pressure is one pressure. So even if he's taking um, eight, quote-unquote, true pass sets in a game where it's not off play action, he's not getting a chip, whatever, if he's only allowing one pressure, again, that's not bad. And that's that's with a guy who I think still has some some technical things that he can improve on. And he's been working with Duke Manyweather, who's one of the best offensive line coaches really anywhere at any level. He's the same guy who coaches Mitchell Schwartz, Lane Johnson, Trent Brown, all these pro bowl, all pro tackles. Like Duke is the guy they go to, to train with. And he's been training with Mackay ever since his season ended at Louisville to get him ready for the NFL. So again, I have confidence that his pass pro technique is going to improve. He's already a dominant run blocker. He's already a really good athlete. He's a great person, high character, hard worker. I I think he's going to go a lot higher than people think and while I still have Jedrick Wills as my offensive tackle one if you put Makai Becton and his potential that I think he is going to reach up against Andrew Thomas and Tristan Wirfs honestly if I'm in the right system that's going to utilize him on those those zone runs I I would probably strongly consider taking Becton as my second offensive tackle yeah I think Becton's uh, he's a fascinating guy to to watch and for all the reasons you mentioned, but he's just massive. Right. And it goes back to the sort of Bill Parcells planet theory, right? That there's only so many people that are that big on the planet. And if you find them, you go get them. He's that big. And like you said, he's smart. He's technically proficient. He already gets it. He's getting better. Um, The idea that that guy's going to get a lot better is really really frightening yeah (laughs) because he could beat people with just his frame like even if he wasn't that strong just that wingspan that size that frame of getting in the way of people he could beat people with his frame and we've seen plenty of guys like that we saw some at the senior bowl who have a really big frame and we're like well they're, they're winning on frame right now um on top of that he's powerfully dominant with strength he moves well which is ridiculous for a guy of his size. And like you said, he understands the mental component of what do I need to be doing here to make it the best? Meanwhile, I'm going to drive my guy, you know, 13 yards out of bounds and put him like literally back on his bench. Um, yeah, Becton is, yeah. <laughs> Becton is kind of everything. You just grab popcorn and watch. He's, he's that kind of offensive lineman. And there's only... Yeah, he mashes guys. Oh. Like, yeah, it's, 
it's you do end up feeling sorry for the people he's playing against because of the way he wins against them and the regularity he does it with. Yeah, I mean, he's. He, I think he probably led all the college football in pancakes last year. I would be very surprised if anybody beat him on that stat because every other play, I'm not even joking, every other play is pancake. He's ridiculous. Um, who do you got as your number three? Uh, well, since we're talking about pancakes, now I'm kind of hungry, but um, <laughs> I'm going to stay on the pancake theme and go with a guy that I liked uh, the first time I watched him, which was heading to the Senior Bowl. I watched all the interior linemen uh, that were going to be in attendance. And that's because the Bears need a replacement guard for sure. Uh, Kyle Long retiring. Right guard is an, is an open spot right now. And so I wanted to look at all the centers and guards and say, okay, who's, who's available? And there was a guy that I wasn't familiar with named Logan Stenberg from Kentucky. And Logan Stenberg, we've talked about a bunch. I've talked about him on Bears Over Beers as well. And he's a huge dude. Um, he is what you describe as country strong and he usually, uh, ends up laying on top of his guy, uh, in about a third of the plays he's in, right? Because he beat him and he dropped him to the ground and they fell on top of him and they're not going anywhere. They're done. Um, there's several plays I can think of from watching his tape where he knocks the guy down, guy gets up, he knocks him down again. <laughs> he follows him. They try and get up. He knocks him down again. I sent those plays to my editor at Windy City Gridiron, uh, Will, uh, Lester Wilfong Jr., who was a college tackle, uh, and my Bears Over Beers co-host uh, was a college guard. So I, whenever I get sort of what I call O-line porn, I send it to them. And I was like, look at this. And they just sent back like snickers and smiling faces. Because Logan Stenberg is a guy that offensive linemen love. He wins a lot and he doesn't do it pretty we need to talk about form over function right his function is he whoops his guy just about every time and very rarely do they get by him especially at the guard position it's a phone booth he's got a huge frame i think he's six six well over 300 pounds and he just kind of stands there and bends and doesn't go anywhere they just don't move him. It doesn't look particularly pretty. He's not using ideal leverage or anything else, but they just don't win. And when he's run blocking, he's the guy that ends up dropping him on the ground and laying on top of him. So in terms of effectiveness, it's really, really high. In terms of prettiness, it's not very high, but I'm all about function on a football field, and Logan Stenberg is packed with it. At the end of the day, it's a question of did the quarterback get touched, yes or no? You know, and, and most of the time, <laughs> vast majority of the time, with him, the answer is no. You know, you watch the South Carolina game, and I was really eager to to see uh, Javon Kinlaw, who's one of our defensive favorites, go up against him. Uh, and then it turns out, oh, okay, South Carolina just literally lined Javon Kinlaw up on the other side of the line the entire game because they didn't want any piece of Logan Stenberg. And that's saying something, because Javon Kinlaw has really, truly incredible power, and they didn't even bother putting him on Stenberg because they're like, eh, we we can we can get him in the backfield in other ways. We don't need to mess with Logan. We'll just we'll come from the other side. And I think that's a just when you consider how good Kinlaw is, how high he's going to be drafted. If you have a team that is willingly shying away from the quote unquote best on best matchup, that's a pretty high compliment for Logan Stenberg. And I again, the technique isn't great 
the leverage isn't great. Hand placement isn't great. But when you're just naturally that powerful that you win anyway, I don't even I don't even really need an offensive line coach to quote unquote refine him. Does it work or does it not? 95% of the time for him, it works. That's good enough for me. Yeah, you put him in the phone booth and you say, do what you do, Logan, and he will. He will do what he does. And that's that's the end-all, be-all with Logan Stenberg. And if you can tolerate it looking awful in the film room, but your quarterback having a nice, clean jersey at the end of the day, then Logan Stenberg is your guy. And it's funny because when we started talking about him, um, right when I met you at the Senior Bowl, um, I said, watch this guy Stenberg. And you're like, what? <laughs> you're like, I, who? The like, guy who walks with a stick list, up his right? ass? <laughs> yeah, and you're like, all right. And then, you know, sure enough, we watched some of those reps, and then you watch the tape, and you're like, you know, I, I think you might be right about Stenberg. And I was like, yeah, he, he, just, he doesn't lose, right? And at that point, he was pretty typically available in, like, mock drafts and consensus mock drafts well into the 200s. He was at 210, 220. Now, now to put that in round terms, that's, a, that's like a fifth-ish rounder. And over the past two months, steadily, as folks have, again, looked at the tape, refined, gotten gotten to spend more time with him, gotten kind of more comfortable with the fact that, oh, yeah, some of the top talent kind of didn't do so well against him. He has steadily moved up the boards. And as of right now, I'm seeing him consistently from like 110 and up. Uh, I saw him at 90 the other day on a consensus mock draft board. He's he's moved up like literally a hundred spots in people's minds. He is not available past usually the end of the third round, beginning of the fourth round. Now you can't get him. If you were going to wait at that point, I was waiting to the fifth. I was like, I'll take Stenberg in the fifth. No problem. You, you don't get him there anymore. He's, he's consistently going sort of bottom in the third. Um, you know, the compensatory pick range is, is real prime territory for him. And I think that's realistic. I think we're going to see him go in that range and be, you know, plug and play very effective. So let me put you on the spot here. Sure. And I'll, I'll throw out some other guards in this class that are probably going to go on between the second and fourth round. Sure. Um, would you take him over Lemieux? Shane Lemieux from Oregon. Oh, I like Lemieux a lot more than most people. Again, Lemieux was supposed to go to the Senior Bowl, and I was really disappointed when he declined his invitation and didn't show up because I had watched him, and I like him a lot. He's my uh, – yeah, I I would almost say he's my favorite Oregon lineman, and I'm going to get all kinds of crap about that because they got a tackle that's really hot crap. But, um, no, I uh, – would I take him over? Um, do I need – what system do I run? Do I need my guard to move – uh, a long ways. If I do, I'll take Lemieux. If I'm running more of a power sort of man inside zone system, I'll I'll take Stenberg. Yeah, that's why I kind of think he kind of fits the Bears because they're not running a whole lot of outside zone there. It's inside zone. It's power. It's duo. It's we're gonna we're gonna mash you in between the hashes with Dave Montgomery and and you know throw RPOs. I think you're right in that kind of system where like, you know, it's one thing if you're like Kyle Shanahan, you run outside zone a lot. Uh, you're going to want, I'm not going to take Stenberg in that system. Yeah. He's not, he's not very fleet of foot. Let's put it that way. But for something where you're just, you're, you're just making guys bleed up the middle, man, yeah, there's, there's not a whole lot of guards in this class. I'd take above him under those circumstances. Maybe Jonah Jackson, maybe, maybe um and again there's some power guys that if you're talking about value you might get lower down i'm really high on kevin dotson from louisiana lafayette uh robert hunt's uh teammate down there 
uh, he's pretty underrated as a as a power guy. What about Damian um, Lewis? No, you'd still take no, Sandberg. Um, I yeah, I I'm not as high on Lewis as some other folks are. I really think uh, I re- I really think our crush at center made Lewis look better than he would have had he not been there. And that's Lloyd Cushenberry. Um, I think Lloyd Cushenberry is Batman. I think Damian Lewis is Robin. If, if we're sticking with your analogies, that's a good way to put it or Alfred even. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know if he's an Alfred. I mean, he's good. He, look, he's a starting guard at LSU and the sec. He more than held his own. He beat up on a lot of guys. He's, he's a good guard, but like Cushenberry, you know, a lot of times in the LSU system and Joe Brady system, you're seeing those interior doubles. And it's usually Cushenberry and Lewis. And they showed up at the Senior Bowl. They were late ads, both of them. And on day one, they're like, hey, we're going to do the same thing. We're going to double guys. And they they killed. Like, they ran double drills. And those two guys look more polished, of course, because they're teammates and played together for a couple of years, than anybody else. And with their power, like, nobody had a chance against them with doubles. They looked so refined on day one of the Senior Bowl with doubles. Um, but if I'm stacking up, you know, guard one-on-one and I don't get Cushenberry to his left, I'm taking Stenberg, uh, over Lewis. It's hard for me. Like I like Lewis, but it's hard for Lewis to live up to Cushenberry because Cushenberry to me is Nick Mangold. Like that's, yeah. that's how yep. high I look at him as. Yep. I would agree. And I, I loved, I loved Mangold. <laughs> he was a, he was one of my favorite centers for a decade. Uh, yeah. and I, I think Cushenberry is going to end up being that kind of guy, but, um, not to get too far off track here. Speaking of, LSU players uh I did want to I did want to use I know you wanted him so bad but I stole him before you could write him in uh my fourth guy on my list is out of everybody on that LSU roster Lewis Cushenberry even Joe Burrow Jamar Chase Justin Jefferson my favorite individual player to watch on that whole team was Clyde Edwards Hilaire uh I uh, people that I've talked to around the league quietly uh, are begging, or ho- I, I should say praying, that he falls to the second round because yeah. he is not going to last more than 10 picks in the top of the second round, uh, whether it's one of those teams that takes him or somebody trades up because I don't think there's a whole lot of teams that have him lower than their second or third running back. And that's, you know, in keep in mind, Jonathan Taylor's in this class. DeAndre Swift is in this class. Cam Akers, J.K. Dobbins. A lot of teams like Clyde Edwards-Hilaire more than most, if not all of those running backs, because he is really damn good. We had kind of a conversation earlier about Lynn, uh, Lynn Bowden Jr. just being a, a football player. And yeah, yeah, Clyde, Clyde Edwards-Hilaire is a football player. Yeah. You know, he's... Is, he is a damn good football player. We can talk about him being a running back. We can talk about him being whatever else. He is... Okay, if we're going to give an award for the most distracting football player in the 2020 tape draft class, (laughs) he wins hands down. Oh, it's not even close. Every time you try and watch tape of anybody playing LSU, anybody on the LSU offense, like you're like, no, no, I'm going to concentrate. No, no, I'm going to concentrate. Justin Jefferson, I'm just watching the receiver routes. I'm just holy, did you see what he just did? Right. And he does it over and over and over again. There's a consistency to that. It's not just highlight plays and the his ability to get it done. And you say, well, what's it? And the answer is whatever they needed done. Right. If it's a pass route, 
great. If it's grinding out three yards between the tackles behind that offensive line, being patient and then showing power and picking up five when you needing when you need three for the first down, he does whatever is needed and he does it really well and really consistently. I think, you know, when Joe Burrow said that Clyde Edwards Hilaire was the best football player he'd ever played with, people say, what? No, you, you played with the Bosa brothers. You played with Michael Thomas. Zeke Elliott was on your team, you know, when you were a freshman at Ohio State. Chase Young, all these LSU players. Like, there's no way that Clyde Edwards Hilaire is the best football player. But when you look at it through the lens of football player, not who's the best defensive player, who's the best running back, who's the receiver, who's the guy that when it's third and 10 and you're playing against Alabama in prime time to slingshot yourself into playoff contention and they bring pressure, Alabama's making a furious comeback behind their own quarterback that's going to go in the top five. It's a six-point game. Again, this was a real scenario that happened. Third and 10, they bring pressure, free rusher. He gets it out into the flat, just throwing it before the play can even develop. Just go make a play, Clyde. He's sitting there on the sideline. Seven yards between him and the first down marker. Two Bama defenders closing in. Trayvon Diggs sitting literally a horse's ass hair away in front of him. And he said, well, go get a first down the hard way. And he just fucking trucks him. Yep. And just just takes him for a ride for six yards to get a first down, move the chains. And they scored on that drive. Yeah, Diggs has CEH in his nightmares. He has to after that game because you watch that game and at least twice directly, and I would say three times indirectly, you know, uh, Clyde Edwards-Hilaire just goes after Diggs physically and he just whoops his ass every time. Like on that play, I know exactly what play you're talking about. I was watching it the other night because uh, you sent me the Alabama All-22 and I was watching all three safeties. I was watching McKinney and Shaheem Carter and, and Jerry Maiden. And I was like, oh, here it comes, because I've seen that game <laughs> a ton from every angle. And I was like, oh, this is the one where Diggs gets his lunch money taken again. And it's Edwards Hilaire, and he just bucks him in the chest with his helmet, looks like a little Earl Campbell, and drives him for first down. Like, he had every bit of position, leverage, timing, whatever you want. And the bottom line is LSU first down. And that's the bottom line with Clyde Edwards-Lair. People are like, he's too short. Well, look at that, first down. Uh, you know, he he can't possibly be a good receiver. Oh, nope. He's not going to truck. He can't run inside. He can't run outside. Can't oh, he runs 4-6, and he's 5-7. I don't care. Yeah. And, yeah, that's the thing. It's like, he can't do this. He can't do that. And it's like, you turn on the tape, and all he's doing is doing that stuff over and over and over again. He is one of if not my favorite overall football player in this class because he's just so much fun to watch and he's so good at football the patriots would not have beaten the falcons and come back from a 25 point deficit without james white being a damn good football player but lsu does not beat alabama without clyde edwards hilaire he is one of those guys that no he he has like three clutch plays in that game that oh way more than that even i mean he I mean, was, but I mean, if you're purely removing him as the only factor, there are easy three I can think of right offhand where I'm like, without him, with any other back in this class, if we're talking about backs, like who are very talented, let's let's be honest, they don't get that. Yeah. Like when when shit is real, when when you have when your team's back is against the wall, you need a play. It's a big game. I want Clyde Edwards-Hilaire more than any other running back in this class, and it is not a discussion. No, 
no, I wouldn't even gamble with anybody in the top five. I, you know, I was like, will you know, my first question is, and it, it was the same on this list and you stole him, but will you give me Clive Edwards Hilaire, right? Will you give me CEH? Because if you will, I'll take him. Like it's again, like you said, it's not a question. I'll just take him. Yeah. God, I love him. I, I really hope he doesn't go to the chiefs. Cause we might as well just hand them the, another Lombardi yeah, right we, now. We talked about that as a panic <laughs> scenario when I was down at your house, like four or five weeks ago. And, and it came up the first time and I looked at you and I was like, Oh God. And you're like, no, <laughs> like, we both knew exactly what we're talking about. Like the chiefs need one more ultimate weapon on that offense. It's, it wouldn't even be fair. So yeah, no, Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, easy to talk about him all night. He is amazing. We both love him. We can't wait to watch him in the NFL. You have a, you have a, a, another running back who I think people don't pay attention to enough on your list, um, but he's been getting a little bit more pub lately. Why don't you tell us a little bit about Zach Moss from Utah? Yeah, Zach Moss is a great back, and there are, I think, running back gets a little bit underrated in this class. Everybody talks about wide receiver. A lot of people talk about cornerback. Um, running back is loaded and I'm super excited to be now finally working through at a detailed level, all the running backs. Again, one of my favorite things to do. Zach Moss was one of the first running backs I got a chance to watch because I watched some of the Washington defenders first and, um, watched them play Utah and Zach Moss is a big guy who runs really hard. My first thought upon seeing probably four or five carries out of Zach Moss is that's a Seahawks running back. Right. That's a, <laughs> you are totally right. <laughs> that's a better version of Chris Carson. Right. He's faster. Uh, I think he's certainly more developed than Carson was coming out. Carson famously not a, a highly drafted player. <laughs> um, Moss is big and powerful. People say he's not fast. That's not true. He's plenty fast. We just talked about, you know, Clyde Rebuchelaire running a four six. Um and he is not just a banger. He is not somebody that just looks for contact. Like, he does not shy away from it. That Utah team is extremely tough. Um, folks from inside college football say that Utah plays like an SEC team, which is the ultimate sort of compliment. They're very, very tough. Very, very tough team on offense and defense. And, and Moss is the perfect sort of epitome of that for them on the offensive side of the ball. Um, not super developed catching the ball, but not. Um, incapable in that part of the game, a good solid pass protector uh, and just shows enough facets in the run game that he's going to be really valuable wherever he goes. I think he could absolutely be a rookie starter that contributes at a fairly high level. And if he ends up in an idealized system for him, like Seattle, he could easily be one of those backs that rips off 11 or 1200 yards and scores some big touchdowns. Zach Moss is good at being a running back and very very powerful he um on on the speed note uh, does he have top end speed no part of the reason i kind of have a theory about this and i put it on twitter a few days ago <laughs> lay it on me i want to hear it so jonathan taylor fastest running back in this class i guess unless you count antonio gibson um but you know jonathan taylor's like a legit high four three sprinter kind of guy zach moss it has speed, but I think the reason why his speed is nowhere near in terms of just actually hitting that third gear and being able to pull away in the end, like Taylor does. When you look at his stride, it's a lot different than Taylor's. Remember, Taylor grew up running track. He was taught yeah. how to run, the mechanics of running, uh, which I know you're very familiar with. 
in terms of lifting the knees, opening up the stride, and speed is all about stride length uh, times stride frequency. You know, Moss has the stride frequency down, but he doesn't really open up his stride. He doesn't lift his knees and really, like, let his legs cover ground, which I think limits his speed. So he's kind of got, like, this energizer bunny almost stride going down the field where again his feet are moving really fast but he's just not opening them very wide he's not opening himself up to hit that next gear i think if he if he talks to a track coach um and and he kind of learns the mechanics of running the mechanics of hitting that extra gear like a professional sprinter um i think he can be even faster in the league and really kind of reach a, a level of potential that maybe people don't realize he can yeah, I think it has a little bit to do with being coiled, too, because he is such a big guy. He's 223, um, he, just about a little over 5'9", five, 5'9 nine, five, nine and a half, and 223, and he kind of stays coiled, like you said, those sort of high-frequency, short, choppy steps. He keeps his feet underneath him very well, has very good balance. Um, people bounce off him, both because of his size and because he leans in. He knows how to use that size and power. And to your point, he doesn't really stretch and sort of open himself to contact. He continues to kind of just drive those choppy feet um, down down the field. And even with that, like, he's pretty darn fast. There's people that say, oh, he's not fast. And you can throw three or four clips of Moss at them and go, oh, really? Because he's, he's running away from a linebacker here. Like, he is literally running away from him. So he's not slow by any stretch, but I'm with you that I think, I think he has more potential as a pro and that's saying something because he had a very good college career yeah there's there's definitely more juice there um you know untapped juice i would say um the 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 fifth guy on my list this is kind of a good segue i, I mentioned <laughs> it is, <isn't> it? <laughs> i mentioned antonio gibson before who is my fifth guy he is somebody that that really kind of understands how to open up his stride and hit that next year because he's another running back I guess slash wide receiver. I'm not really sure what he's technically classified as in this draft. Well, if you ask folks in the NFL, I'll tell you what he's classified as. A guy that you get the ball in his hands? <laughs> no, no. The vast majority of, of folks. Lance Zerline just put out a tweet today about this, and he said, I'll tell you when I find somebody that classifies him as a wide receiver. He yeah. said he talked to like 15, 17 coaches, and everybody is classifying Gibson as a running back. Like everybody. I, I project him better as a running back because how many six foot two hundred thirty pounders run four three nine, and yeah. he's not exactly refined as a receiver. And I think his nope. hands are sub nine inches. Let me check. Yeah, his hands are eight and a half inches, which is very very small. And I think would kind of maybe scare some teams off a little bit. Doesn't mean that he can't catch the ball, but I think you. That's not exactly a a prime measurement of eight and a half inch hands like i can't really think of many wide receivers with hands that small that have been super successful in the league to be honest um so again a six foot 230 pounds blazing speed not a refined route runner not huge hands kind of spells running back to me he almost kind of reminds me of like a quarter old patterson except if patterson was allowed to just be a running back from the beginning um, I, mm. I, th I think that's the kind of career arc we're looking at here of like, okay, let's just take the athlete and put him where he's supposed to be from the start, which is on special teams. And as a running back, probably a change of pace back. Um, and I think if you, if you get him to the right team, like cough, cough, the chiefs, 
that can use that size, speed, get him in space, design plays for him, you know, get really, really put his skill set to use. So we're running crack toss with him, we're running outside zone with him, running sweeps with him, we're running screens with him. We can put him in the slot because, again, he has experience at receiver. We don't want him to be a primary receiver. Um, and, and kind of match him up with linebackers that are not going to be able to keep up with his speed. You put him in the slot and, and do work there. So he's he's a do-it-all weapon in the mold of a Cordero Patterson, but if we just don't waste the first few years of his career trying to make him a receiver, and instead if we just put him on special teams and, and as a change of pace back from the start, I think he'll end up having the career that Cordero should have had. Yeah, I would say I'm not – so on board with the Patterson. I, I like I like the comparison to Patterson's career as an athlete. Um, a different beast, uh, definitely a little shorter, uh, sort of more compact, about the same weight, sort of better center of gravity. Um, I would say yeah, maybe even a little more burst. Like Patterson's one of those guys that when he opens up, he's very fast. But I think Gibson might get there a little bit quicker, um, a little bit more rugged maybe in terms of physical contact, but yeah, I'm with you and labeling him a running back doesn't limit a guy anymore. You might say, Oh, that means he needs, you know, 15 carries or 20 carries. No running backs are multifaceted players in just about any offense in the league. Now they routinely split out into the slot. They go on jet sweeps. They, you know, they catch swings, which are basically runs, but they're officially passes in the, in the stat book. So calling him a running back doesn't limit his offensive effectiveness because almost anybody's going to use him as a run pass option. You know, the, <laughs> the sort of personification of the run pass option is Antonio Gibson and he can, he can do it. Boy, you get that guy in space, you give him a crack, um, breaks one tackle. Somebody's lazy with wrapping up and that guy's going to burn you at four, three, nine in that size, right? He's going to score. So, it's all about him fitting into the right place, landing with a coach that understands that he is probably not a hand it to him 15 times, you know, quote unquote bell cow back that you need to be a little bit creative about getting the ball. But if you do it in those right situations on those kind of slicing, almost slashing outside, you know, uh, outside toss wide zone, let him get outside, pick his spot, make, you know, put his foot in the ground, make one cut and just really pin it you're going to see some big plays. You're going to see some explosive plays. I really want him to go to Philly because they already have Miles Sanders. Um, but I think you can fit in Gibson as a change of pace and give Sanders a blow. You know, you give him eight carries a game, give him four catches a game, 12 touches, kind of balance out Sanders, ideally getting 20. And But with those 12 touches, he could get 100 yards. You know, he, he's that kind of talent. You watch him in Cincy, which is when they finally started to kind of commit to him as a running back. He was averaging 11, 12 yards a carry uh, against Cincinnati in their two games they played against them. So, again, he's a dynamic threat, uh, a dynamic athlete, not a refined receiver whatsoever. But, again, if you're just committing to him as a quote-unquote weapon and you, you figure it out later what, what plays he runs best, I think there's a lot of teams that, that have the creativity in their system that can best utilize him. I hope he goes to one of them. That means New Orleans, New England, Philly. Um, I think Frank Reich over in Indy could do some fun things with him. Baltimore obviously could do a whole lot of fun things with him. Uh, Anthony Lynn with the Chargers, if they're looking for a change of pace for, for Eckler, who's going to be their new number one running back. Like there's, there's a lot of teams that I think he could have an excellent career with. 
and I sincerely hope he goes to them because he honestly he could be one of the more effective weapons in this whole class uh even if he's not a volume weapon it's just in terms of pure efficiency he could be one of the best in this whole class if he goes to the right team yeah you match him up on whoever's the slowest and you use those shifts the pre-motion shifts to identify who that is and sort of put them out on an island and they just they just pee their pants like that would be super super fun so um my last guy is a guy that not a ton of people are talking about um I think he has a very defined role moving into the league, and that's Josiah DeGuara from Cincinnati, uh, tight end. And definitely on the move tight end side, DeGuara is not a huge guy. He's in the 230s, I want to say. He's a fourth-year senior out of Cincinnati, just over 6'2", call it 6'2 and a half. Oh, 242. He's a little bigger than I thought he was. Runs very, very well. One of my favorite things about DeGuara is that – he is a high effort player. There's a play where uh ball gets picked off and he ends up running about 80 yards from the opposite side of the field to tackle that guy at about their 10 uh, and prevent the touchdown. Just a high effort player always plays with a bunch of hustle, understands um, leverage, understands zones can get himself open, especially against zone, um, but is capable of outrunning man too. He has, Pretty good wheels. He's very natural in terms of being a hands catcher. Not a ton as a blocker, but he will bring pop at 242 and surprise some, say, nickel corners who have crept down and, and split the tight end out wide, and he'll run a crack. They'll run out behind him. So versatile skill set, really fun player. Again, sort of football player, guy you'd want on your team because he hustles. He can make first downs for you. Definitely a guy in his early career that could earn his keep on special teams, has that mentality. Just a really sort of good all-around player that's going to be available later, fourth, fifth, maybe even sixth. I think he'll probably go in the late fourth or early fifth. But for a guy that's going to contribute at move tight end, which is almost a starting position at you know, half the offenses in the league. Um, even if he's an understudy for a couple of years and just keep on special teams, that's a great value to get out of a fourth or fifth round pick. And again, he's a really hard guy to bet against because of all the little things he does well. And again, we, we're going to mention them damn near every podcast, but he fits them very, very well. Baltimore. Because we know that's a team that will use all of their tight ends. Yeah, they'll actually play all, the all of them. they have, which is rare. They already have Andrews, they already have Boyle, but they, they play 13 personnel quite frequently because they can. I think you have him as a move option, you know, an H-back. You put him in the slot, it's a big slot. Um, you can even put him outside a little bit, I think, if you really want to. Again, he's not going to blow the top off you, but um, just as, as a body that you can put out there and just kind of do interesting things with. Again, he's That's a versatile funny. piece. Yeah, it's funny because I was just watching the Washington offense tonight. I was watching Salvan Ahmed, their running back. But um, that offense runs a lot of uh, bunch and tight stack and, you know, all guys in between the hash marks. And if you run him in a stack, right, with a with a receiving tight end like Andrews and make the third guy in the stack like Hollywood Brown, <laughs> right? You're giving Hollywood and, a free release. Well, yeah, you, you, and that's the thing is you could just run the same stack and you could run probably 10 or 11 like pass variations out of the exact same set. You still got Lamar quarterback, which constant, just 
just makes everything so much more complicated. Uh, you're going to have, you know, very good running back options, a, a solid offensive line as the Ravens often do. But now you've got this problem all stuffed over on the left-hand side. You've got a, a legitimate move tight end who can run, you know, I would say anything short to mid deep routes pretty effectively. You've got Andrews, who's a very good uh, sort of physical receiver in the short zone. And then you got a speed threat and you don't know which one of them is going where, right? Any one of them can go out and turn left and run the flat route. And then you've got seam post corner whatever. And that would be, uh, I could just see them having a lot of fun stymieing defenses. And the more I watch offenses lately, the places where, again, I told you I was watching that Alabama All-22 you sent me, and the places where even the really good defenses, and let's be honest, Alabama's is a really good defense, really struggle, is with who's got who in stack. You can see them, even guys like McKinney, who people say is very, very smart and was getting everybody on. He's looking at his other guys and going, no, no, he's your, no, get over here. No, no, and sure enough, <laughs> the offense snaps the ball, and they're not locked in. And they're not alone. We saw that with the Cal defense. Um, it, that is sort of one theme out of this year's tape work that comes over and over again. If you really want to screw people up, run a good stack variation that always looks the same off the snap, but you do a good five or 10 things out of it. And the defense will break at some point, you will get a busted coverage and a free either 20 yards or touchdown. And the thing with those, those saving defenses that people need to understand, they're incredibly complex and yep. a, a lot of what they do will look exactly the same, um, but their assignments might be wildly different. So, like, let's say again, if it's a if it's a two man stack, um, you know, and they have a clamp call on, which is a, a three man uh, a three man coverage call against a two man stack in that system. Um, you know, they'll play a lot of cover seven, so like the the, the coverage call will be seventy seven clamp in Sabanese. Um and so a clamp call is like the number you one. You need a T-shirt that says "I speak Sabanese." <laughs> yeah. well, if you follow uh, Coach Kyle Kogan on Twitter, he's got a lot of this stuff. It's very, very good. Um, so like a clamp call, it's like the boundary corner. You know, he'll he'll carry the number one receiver, but if the number two receiver uh, in the stack breaks out um, anything under five yards, that's his. And then the safety has the number one, and then the the number. Th- to I guess you would call him an apex defender inside again because it's a three-on-two coverage. Now he's looking for a number three coming across, and if there's no number three, then his responsibility is now to rob number one, and that's just one call. That's one three-on-two coverage call they have, and there's like 12 of them just to handle a stack. And so if you don't get that 77 clamp call, and then if they motion into the stack, and so then, you know, if, the if say, McKinney is changing the call to something else, like... Um, like shoot or trap, whatever other, because again, they have a whole bunch of different coverage calls and you don't hear it because it's, there's 90,000 people screaming at the top of their lungs. If you don't hear it and all of a sudden you, you take number one instead of uh, sitting on number two and it's third and five and you give them a free out and you say, oh man, well, they just, it's just a speed out it, whatever. What can you do? It's like, no, there, there wasn't a coverage call that was called that was supposed to stop that, but you didn't hear it. You didn't communicate. You didn't understand your assignment. So that's, that's part of the, the problem. And I wouldn't see a problem. Part of the difficulty with evaluating some of the DBs in this system, because you're never a hundred percent sure what their assignment is because it all looks exactly the freaking same, but it might be 
a totally different assignment that you thought they had, but they really didn't have. And it's, uh, Bama DBs are just really frustrating because you know, you know what the system is, you know, theoretically what they're supposed to be doing, but you don't know if that was the exact thing that was called. And really all you can do when you're evaluating DBs in that kind of system is just look at traits because knowing their assignment is damn near impossible. Yeah, no, I would agree. It's, I, I, you and I had a little Twitter or a text exchange when I was watching that tape because it is, um, yeah, it is a it is a mental exercise to pick that apart, uh, even at my very limited level, and say they're good or they're bad. Um, you know, they did what they were supposed to do or they didn't, and you really end up, like you said, reverting to, you know, how did they move? Did they use leverage in the places where they were? You know, uh, you know, in a zone, and at that point, you can assume that they're in the right zone. How did they play it? Did they play it aggressively? Did they play it soft? Um, yeah, it becomes a very, very, uh, especially when you're watching all 22 with no, no sound, no announcers calling anything, um, two, two versions of every play. It's a 45 or 50 minute tape. And it's, it's a, it's a hard thing to focus through. It's a, it's a lot of fun as an exercise, but boy, you got to put on some popcorn tape after that and have some fun because if you just did that all day. Um, I just like it when people say like, oh, I don't like so-and-so Bama defender or could be Georgia or really anybody that runs, like, you know, even the Clemson guys in Dave Aranda's system. They say like, oh, he makes too many mental mistakes. It's like, how do you freaking know? Like, no, we don't. I I have their playbooks and I know a decent amount of the terminology. I'm not as experienced in it as a lot of the other guys you find on Twitter. And even I can't tell what coverage they're in because they all look the same. How do you know they're making mental mistakes? <laughs> yeah. And a lot of times it's, did they try and flex to cover somebody else's, which is when defenses really start to break is, Hey, I know that's your guy, but I also know you're not covering him and I can't leave him wide open. So I'm going to pull off my guy cause he's short and that guy's long. Yeah. And you know, it looks like, well, he just left his guy. He's undisciplined. Well, no, nope, maybe he knew where the hole was. And he just prevented, you know, the long touchdown. So, yeah, we could talk about that. Well, <laughs> endlessly we do. Uh, but we should probably get out of here because people have been listening to us for a very long time now. Yeah, this has uh, been a long show. We kind of thought it was going to be a long show. That Anytime we have 10 prospects to talk about, they do kind of kind of bleed on and on. So we'll get out of here. Um, again, great show. Thank you again, EJ, for indulging my ranting and raving about uh one jalen hurts because i, I that's more fine than most. and you indulging mine as well because it is the time of year for ranting and raving we are recording this one week out exactly from the draft kicking off the 2020 draft kicks off next thursday uh you'll probably be hearing this on friday or saturday but we've got a bunch of other stuff coming up we're going to try and get some live coverage going for the draft hopefully do a live stream uh both pre and post uh each day of the draft if we can um, maybe even do a live mock draft as kind of a warm up or a test before that. Probably have at least one more pod that comes out, if not two, before the draft. And then, of course, we'll have wrap ups on all the draft picks. Uh, a big one, probably, my guess is Saturday or Sunday after the draft, sort of wrapping up just how it went. Top themes, top storylines. Um, oh, yeah, I might have a new take on grades, but we'll, uh, we'll, we'll save that for a different show. Yeah, you you have a lot of interesting numerical things coming up. A little bit, of, oh yes, a little I bit do. of a tease, a little bit of a tease. Yes, but I do. We'll get to that after the draft because uh, we still got a lot more to talk about. So again, stick with us. One week to go till the 2020 NFL Draft. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week.